0: Hooker, artist and founder of this project space and curator of the show and mother of three. And this show on mothering has been very much inspired by Hattie Jundel's work, among others, which makes it extra special for me to have her here today to talk about the book.
1: I think I think this needs to go into airplane mode. Is it not? A couple of Instagram notifications just came through.
0: Is that not you? Mm-hmm. I just saw Instagram. Okay, cool. Yeah.
1: Hello. Sorry, I'm, I'm wildly unprofessional in general. I went on a podcast earlier and kicked over my thermos halfway through. So, and as Ingrid knows, my pod, my thermos is a big. Thermos, so it made a lot of noise. So I'll try and be a bit more professional. I will also try and read my own text, which may be challenging. Um, Thank you all so much for coming this evening. Um, So what I'm going to do this evening is read a slightly modified version of the introduction to How Not to Exclude Artist Mothers, which I can... There. There. the book doesn't have any illustrations and so I thought it might be really lovely to show some of the artists I mentioned in the introduction to the book which kind of gives a, a bit of a historical background to the whole issue of artist mothers. Um, so we'll, we'll look at a couple of artists and their work as well as reading the introduction and then after that Penelope and I are going to have a little chat and then we will open things up um, to the floor for a Q&A. Um, can you all hear? Okay, okay, brilliant. Because I don't think this is an amplifying microphone. Is it? It's just a, it's just a recording microphone. So I'm going to try and do the slides and read the text, and it'll it'll be it'll in, it'll be inept, but something will happen. The old cliche that one cannot be both an artist and a mother has proved remarkably durable. It lingered on through the feminist avant garde of the 1970s and 80s. In the 1990s, some of my artist contemporaries decided not to start families because they feared that as mothers they would not be taken seriously. The cliche still bedevils artists today. In part, it is born of old fashioned prejudice. To those who consider women artists an inferior proposition, artist mothers seem beyond the pale. In part, too, it arises from the seductive potency of the artist as a countercultural figure. For what is one to rebel against if not domesticity and the conventions of family life? There are real challenges to being an artist mother, but they arise neither from a lack of ability nor of a lack of bohemian spirit. As you will discover in reading this book, many of the problems artist mothers face result from conventions within the art world itself. Such problems are pervasive and found all the way from our colleges to our great galleries. They are structural hindrances that impede not only mothers, but all artists caring for children and many art world professionals besides. The art world's mother problem has long roots. Before we explore the situation in the present day, it is worth taking a brief art historical detour to refresh our memories as to how we got here. A quick sprint through a few case studies over the last century to see how the art world's prejudice around motherhood took hold and the impact it has had. In the mid-1890s, an exceptional generation of female students passed through London's Slade School of Fine Art. Founded in 1871, the Slade was Progressive, the only London art school to offer the same opportunities to male and female students. Crucially, these included life drawing, considered a foundational skill for a professional artist the lack of which had condemned many women to careers painting flowers and interiors. Edna Waugh, Gwen John, Ida Nettleship and Gwen Salmon won the respective tutors and male contemporaries, as well as the school's most coveted awards. Of those four names, the only one familiar to museum visitors today is Gwen John. She was also the only one to abjure married life and domesticity, recognizing that she would need a life free from family convention and ties if she were to continue to work. So this is a drawing by Augustus John. On the left, we have Ida Nettleship. In the middle, it's Ursula Tiwet, and on the right, that's Gwen John. Gwen John's friends' lives after the Slade give some idea of the ties and the mortal hazards bound up in the conventions of family for women artists at the turn of the century. Nettleship married John's brother Augustus and proceeded through a series of back-to-back pregnancies I've slightly got my slides out of whack here. but um, Where's Ida Nettleship? No. I we'll would have to stick with Ida Nettleship. She's there on the left. We'll get another photograph, for, picture of her in a minute. Sorry, sorry. So Nettleship married John's brother, Augustus, and proceeded through a series of back-to-back pregnancies. She, she wrote, It may only be because there's nothing else to do now that painting is not practicable and I must create something. She wrote to a friend as her family expanded. She died of puerperal fever aged 30, shortly after giving birth to her fifth child in six years. Edna War married a champion of children's rights and took his name, Clark Hall. Her husband was unmoved by her exceptional talent and her creativity was left to stifle amid domestic responsibilities. When she achieved a solo show at the Redfern Gallery in London in 1924, by then aged 45, Critics could not ignore her status as a middle-aged woman with children. One even alluded to her having surrendered her genius for the sake of marriage and motherhood. This is actually the only picture I can find of Gwen Salmon. She's on the left. This is a painting by Gwen John. Gwen Salmon married fellow artist Matthew Smith, who admired her work, but nevertheless, left her to look after their sons alone so that he could paint undisturbed by domestic cares. Remembering these remarkably brilliant women many years later, Augustus John noted without a trace of irony that in talent as well as in looks, the girls were supreme among the slave students of their day, but that their advantages for the most part came to naught under the burdens of domesticity. This story of brilliant talents quashed by domestic cares might be repeated endlessly. No doubt there is a version of it for every 19th century art school that admitted women students. Such tales have become deeply embedded in art world mythology, repeated as evidence that it is tough enough for a woman to make a career as an artist and near impossible to do so as a mother. Now, before I go on to the next bit, I just wanted to look at some of the work of some of these women because you know we talk about these overlooked women artists or these women who've lost their careers due to motherhood. And I thought it'd be interesting to see what work they were making, what survived of their work. Um, so this is Gwen John, who I, I assume you're all familiar with. Um, so she was the one of the, the group that didn't have children. And she produced absolutely extraordinary work. I mean, she was, you know, a, one of the leading artists of her day. She was collected by, you know, people that collected Picasso and Diego de Vada. She had a, an American patron that really supported her work, John Quinn. Um, this is poor Ida Nettleship. so she married Augustus John, I could find no work of hers left in any British public collections. There must be some work. She was part of this extraordinary generation. She was out there getting the prizes. I don't know if the Slade still has some of her work in their archive, but she basically comes down to us now as a muse, essentially. She's Augustus John's muse, so here she is. She's posed as a gypsy. He had this kind of fetish for gypsy life at the time and used to go and get lessons on being a gypsy from proper, proper travelling people. Um, She also had a remarkably kind of modern relationship um, with uh, a woman that became known as Dorelia, who was a friend of Gwen John's, possibly a lover of Gwen John's, we don't know. I think there's been quite a lot of research recently suggesting that Gwen John was bisexual. She's famous for her relationship with Rodin, but she also, it seems likely, had some quite passionate relationships with women. Um, So this is Dorelia that ended up uh, living in... uh, basically a threesome with uh, poor Ida Nettleship and Augustus John. This is, yeah, this is Ida Nettleship, painted very heavily pregnant by her husband. Um, this is an early work by Edna War. She became known as Edna Clark Hall. And that, again, suggests one of the big problems for women artists in this era. If you married, you lost your name. So her early works were all under the name Edna War. Her later works were under the name Edna Clark Hall. That's also the case for um, Ida Nettleship. She became known as Ida John. And Gwen Salmon, who became known as Gwen Smith or Gwendolyn Smith. So it's quite difficult tracking down works. Um, so this is a very early work. So as you can see, she's, you know, she's got a remarkable facility for kind of modelling stuff. But she then moved into quite to much more experimental work. So this is one of a series of um, illustrations she did for Wuthering Heights. And she did this during a period in her marriage where essentially her husband wasn't allowing her out to participate in, in the art world. He wasn't supporting her. She was unable to make much work, and she wasn't showing. Um, so she, she then did start to show when she was in her 40s, when her children were a bit older. Um, so this is a nude that she did. And I think it's... I mean, you can't really see it in detail. I'll go back to a work of hers later on, um, which I think is quite remarkable. And this is a work by Gwen Salmon, which is the only painting I could find by her. So it's... I mean, this isn't brilliant, but she clearly... She did keep making work until she was an old woman, but it's all disappeared. <laughs> Nobody's keeping records of this stuff. This is... Yeah, this is the work by Edna Clark Hall that I thought was absolutely extraordinary. This is a drawing of her teenage son, which, I, you know, I assume that it was a lover, having seen it for the first time, but it's her teenage son reading in the garden. So when we go into this... Um, this question about, also later, I mean, later in the book book I talk a little bit about what mothers have left to them to to make work about, and quite often it's work about the domestic realm and their children, and there's a whole conversation at the moment about the ethics of featuring children in artworks, Um, and this, I mean, I can't imagine an artist painting this today, Mm -hmm. to do this really quite, I mean, this quite sexy painting of a, I guess, a 16-year-old boy with a T-shirt over his head reading a book in in the garden. It seems remarkable. Anyway, I'm going to go back to the book now, sorry. Um, So, yes, actually, the reason I wanted to pause on Edna this point is because she also fought back against this this characterization of her as a kind of victim of the domestic. The reality is rather more complex, as Edna Waugh herself pointed out in 1924 in a reply to her critics... She insisted that talent does not have to be sacrificed at the altar of domestic happiness. So even then, among the obstacles that she faced as an artist's mother was prejudice, the perception that in having a family she had relegated art to the status of an afterthought. The avant-garde of the early 20th century thought domesticity a drag. The modern, liberated, bohemian lifestyle was also fretted with double standards. Free love tends to have consequences. And in the days before reliable contraception and legal abortion, it was the women that dealt with the sticky end. Living with Jacob Epstein and his family as a young woman, Isabel Rothson found herself pregnant by the older artist. So I think there was a 22-year age gap between Isabel Rothson and Jacob Epstein at this time. So she was living with his family partly kind of as a muse. So this is a, a sculpture that he made of Isabel when she was living with him and his family. I think she was about mm, 20 at this point. And he was at least in his 40s, if not his 50s. Um, (coughs) Sorry. Living with Jacob Epstein and his family as a young woman, Isabel Roththorne found herself pregnant by the old artist. Ahead of the birth, she legally changed her name to Margaret Epstein, the name of his wife, so that the sculptor and his wife could raise the baby as their own. So just to reiterate that, she changed her name to the name of Epstein's wife, So Epstein's wife's name would appear on the birth certificate of the child. She basically completely erased herself from the child's life. She wrote herself out of that child's life so that the child basically could be brought up by someone else. Rawson erased herself from her child's life as a single woman living as an artist in a conservative society to have kept the baby would have been ruinous. So she essentially moved with nothing from London to Paris, where she started a relationship with Giacometti. And um, she kind of went through a life in which, having started as an extraordinarily promising young artist, so she also showed with um, Redfern Gallery, which seems to have supported lots of women artists at the beginning of the century. It's really interesting. And she was, you know, she had solo shows before she was living with Epstein. She kind of went on to this life as a muse. So she was a muse to Giacometti, and he talked about her as the woman moving through the city. So you think of these striding figures that Giacometti. Sculpted, and they were kind of, many of them were based on this idea of Isabel Rawshorn's kind of striding through the modern city. Um, that is Epstein with Jackie, so you can see how much he looks like his mother in retrospect. He didn't realize that Isabel Rawhorn was his mother, I think, until he was in his sixties. Uh, this is a drawing by Jacob Epstein of Jackie, so this is you know the the father doing the drawings of the baby, which seems extraordinary. And Rawson uh, also, as a muse, became a muse to Francis Bacon, so there are lots of great paintings of her by Bacon. Uh, and she was clearly an absolutely extraordinary and an extraordinary force. Uh, and she did start painting again quite seriously, but lots of her work was destroyed during the war. It was lost in bombing. I think when she left Paris, she had to leave it behind, essentially, because Paris was in such a dangerous, precarious state at that point. But this is a painting of hers that's now in the Taint, which is the only kind of mother and child I can find by Isabel Rawthorne, so it's a baboon mother and child. Um, I think I've gone in the wrong order because I was meant to show you a picture by Eileen Agar now, sorry. Um, but just by comparison, oh no, sorry. I'm very disorganized, I'm terribly sorry about this. <laughs> so, a visionary experimental life of the mind was considered at odds with bourgeois considerations, of such bourgeois considerations as gainful employment and family duties which was tough if you were, for example, Jacqueline Lomba, attempting to raise a child with fellow surrealist André Breton. Even before pregnancy, Breton had regarded Lomba as a muse rather, rather than as an artist. She described him introducing her to friends as a naiad. So when he met her, she was performing in a kind of burlesque show at um, a cafe in Paris, and she performed nude in a tank of water which is kind of interesting. You kind of think if she'd been living now, she might have become an extraordinary performance artist. So that was kind of... This was taken basically, I think, in the year, probably even the month that she met André Breton. Um, so Breton basically saw in her what he wanted to see, but he didn't really see her, she says. After the birth of their daughter, Orb, Breton's life continued much as it has before, but Lomba had to put aside her own ambitions... Her life of the mind was evidently not of concern within this arrangement. I got a bit obsessed with Jacqueline Lombard, so I'm going to show some photographs now. She's, I mean, she's an amazing-looking woman, and this is, she was really close friends of Claude Cahun, and this is a photograph, a double portrait of her taken with Breton by Claude Cahun. and this is her and her daughter, Orb visiting Claude and... Um, God, brain's melting... Um, sorry, can somebody remind me that is Sophie Mellerbe, is it? Her. Anyway, I'll remember it. This is Claude Cahun's partner in Jersey. They were living together as women in, on the Isle of Jersey. Um, and this is Jacqueline Nomba on the right. She's gone to Mexico with Breton, who's on the left, and here she is with Diego Rivera and Trotsky. Uh, and obviously, on this trip, she met... Frida Kahlo, with whom I think that she... I mean, I've read their letters. They're very, very passionate. I'm assuming that they had a relationship. This is a painting that Frida Kahlo did for her, which, as you can see, is full of some really unsubtle imagery of, like, lovely ripe fruits bursting open. Uh, And that's meant to be um, Jacqueline up there as the doll on the left, kind of peering into these pink, ripe, wet fruits that are there on the middle of the table. Um she left Breton because I think Breton sounded like he was quite insufferable in general. So this is her second husband, David Hare, uh with whom she had this baby Merlin. And I just love this paint, this photograph of her the baby. Um so she obviously adores her children, but she was also, you know, um she also had like teenage troubles, at a certain point all went back to live with Breton as a teenager. You can see, you know, you can see her looking quite mischievous there. But I was quite pleased to discover this photograph. So they all clearly all then kind of rejoined one another at a certain point. So the question is, you know, Jacqueline Hombre, was she an artist? She studied art. I wanted to find out what she did. This is her making, I think she was 19 when she painted this self-portrait. Maybe even younger. I think she was what, what is it 1927? She was 17 when she painted this self-portrait. So that was 1927. Um she was Friends with Wilfredo Lamb, so you can see that there's. I mean, she does pick up influences from people. This is cl- very clearly influenced by Wilfredo Lamb, but I mean, they're big paintings. Like, I thought, I think they're good. Um, she was also showing work, so this is an exhibition that she had of her drawings. And then she started making kind of like very abstract works, and I thought this was kind of wonderful. I really like that. Um, so, yeah, so Jacqueline Lombard she was an artist she was making work she continued making work despite the fact there were all these men fetishizing her and you know she was bringing up children so I was really thrilled to discover that there was this body of work out there it's unseen it's not really I've never seen it shown I don't think it was in the Venice Biennale this summer when they had all of the female surrealists but I guess she's not so much a surrealist she's maybe more doing kind of abstract painting but yeah that was really heartening to find that case she's an artist and a mother she's not being shown but she is continuing to make work and it's good it's worth looking at Um, so one of the few women to be shown by the surrealists and credited for it was Eileen Agar in the 1930s and really notably like Gwen John she had made a conscious decision to try for something as she put it more worthwhile than the usual repetitive routine of marrying and having a brood of children family was regarded as a trap And this is one of the paintings that were shown in the um, International Surrealist Exhibition in London in 1936. Too often, those women that we do remember as mothers are judged harshly. Now, does everybody know the story of this work? This is is a sculpture by Barbara Hepworth. It was made in 1935. it's, It's part of a series that she made of sculptures called Mother and Child. And you can see that there's immediately a massive difference between this work and the work that other artists were making called Mother and Child, in that the mother and the child are separate entities carved from the same piece of stone. So the mother is creating a hollow in which the child can rest, but it's also a separate. And this was obviously a period when she was reading Freud. She already had one child at this point. She had met and was at this point then in a relationship with Ben Nicholson. Um, and little did she realise it, or possibly she might have thought about it at the time, but she was at this point pregnant by Ben Nicholson. Barbara Hepworth has been unkindly remembered for having, a brief, having briefly placed her baby triplets in the care of a nursing college. So what's amazing is this is kind of her fantasy, I think, of her baby with, Brett, with Ben Nicholson. She then had triplets, because obviously they had no ultrasound scans, and this is the work that she made after having had the triplets, which is quite different, um, And in this, we can really see the three triplets all as individual entities, and she's essentially the plinth underneath. And I really love this kind of conceptual leap that we get. So here is Hepworth looking remarkably happy with her older son and the three triplets, and Ben Nicholson not looking quite so happy. (laughs) So, So mainly when we talk about Barbara Hepworth being a mother, the kind of great legend that's come down to us about her is the fact that she placed her babies into a nursing home. And everybody kind of goes, she got rid of her children. And what's extraordinary is that now, like only last year have these letters come out where she's essentially, Ben Nicholson's gone back to Paris to be with his other family. She's in a basement flat in Hampstead. The boiler's not working, everything's leaking, there are holes in the window. And I, do, I mean, I don't know if anybody has triplets or twins, but it's a huge deal to to kind of, kind of handle four children four like three tiny tiny children she was supporting herself through her art she wasn't independently independently wealthy she didn't have a husband supporting her at that point and it was basically like I can't make art and look after four children in one go and so she put the triplets for a few months I think while they were really really small into an in in with um it was a nurse's training school I think and I think they were looked after for six months, and I think one of the triplets was very small and quite unwell, and she basically felt that they'd be better looked after than she could care for them. But they were reunited, it was only for kind of six months, and I think she made a pragmatic decision because she had to support the family, she had to work. It's only recently with the publication of material based on private correspondence from the time that the heartache and hardship that Hepworth went through as a young mother, living alone and supporting herself through her work, has come to light. <coughs> Wouldn't it be glorious if all of this were the stuff of the distant past? If artists didn't feel pressured to choose between motherhood and a successful career? If the art world was no longer hung up on carefree youth? If a woman in her late 40s wasn't seen as mumsy and unserious, exhibiting again after taking a break to raise children? If family was not considered a trap for women because childcare was equally shared between partners? If mothers in the public eye were no longer judged for all they did and didn't do? Alas, as yet, this is far from the case. There have been a number of recent studies into gender balance, notably Women's Place in the Art World, led by Charlotte Burns and Julia Halperin in the United States, and the Annual Representation of Female Artists in Britain, reports by the Freelance Foundation in the the United Kingdom, recently done by Kate, who's sitting there. Oh, there you go. I've got that. There you go. Um, In 2019... I started discussing invisible factors in the data with Dr. Kate McMillan. Thank you, Dr. Kate, author of the recent Freelance Foundation reports. Her 2018 report showed more female than male students undertaking postgraduate... Wait a minute. I'll come back to it. I thought I had this in here. I'm going to bump through a few. Um, showed more female than male students undertaking postgraduate studies in creative art and design and that over the past decade there had been been rough gender parity in selection for new contemporaries, a prestigious showcase for early career artists. The fortunes of male and female artists then started to diverge. Of the artists represented by London's leading galleries, only 32% were female. Macmillan and I became curious about what impact, if any, motherhood was having on this. The mid-30s are a sweet spot for many artists, the years when they might get gallery representation, major commissions and institutional shows. They are also often the years many start a family. Was there something about the art world that made it particularly difficult for artists caring for children to flourish? It has become unacceptable to ask a successful woman in any career how she balances domestic and working life. For good reason. We don't ask men these questions. I'm not advocating a return to the bad old days, but sometimes, in the right context... These forbidden questions become important, and in failing to ask them, we end up maintaining the very structures that make it hard for working parents to thrive. Macmillan commissioned me to write about the impact of motherhood on artists' careers for her report the following year. My initial inquiries turned into a substantial piece of research, drawing on interviews with over 50 artists at stages of motherhood from pregnancy to grand matriarchy. The interviews built up a picture of an art world that excluded the participation of mothers, and other artists with caring responsibilities on multiple fronts. Sometimes that exclusion was the result of structures that had endured unquestioned since the mid-20th century. In many cases, exclusion was the result of sheer thoughtlessness. No one had taken into account the possibility that an artist might also be a mother, and had made no provision for this. There was an overwhelming sense that old prejudices died hard, the condescension extended to Edna Clark Hall, the presumption that Jacqueline Lambert no longer had a life of the mind, the judgment levelled at Barbara Hepworth lingered on. Much of the problem was rooted in bigotry. The findings of that study were outlined in the, in the essay Full Messy and Beautiful, which raised the questions faced by artist mothers. Sorry, which raised the problems faced by artist mothers. How to tackle these problems? <clears throat> In 2021, together with a group of artist parents, I put together a manifesto aimed at institutions and residency programs, how not to exclude artist parents. Many artists and institutions have found the manifesto useful. In my upcoming book, I will go further, drawing on my original study to ad- identify problems facing artist mothers, and then looking to artists, networks and organisations that have pushed to change and pioneered creative solutions. My initial research was conducted with artists based in the UK but this is an issue that to a greater or lesser degree affects artists around the world. In the book we hear from a creative support network in South Korea, a residency program in Canada and an artist tackling the mother-shaped hole in art schools in the Netherlands. This is an area of great concern to many artists and we can all learn from these initiatives. Many of the issues faced by artists are faced by all mothers. Parenting is complex and consumes time and attention. It places huge demands on your body. It restricts your time and mobility. This does not stop with the years of pregnancy, babies and breastfeeding. An artist in her 50s, worrying about the mental health of her adult child, is still actively mothering. The impact of motherhood on any career is modified by many intersecting factors. Among them, the number of children in a family, the parent's socioeconomic status... Their access to support networks, and the special health and care requirements of both the children and the parents. As we shall discover in the book, however, there are certain peculiarities to the art world that make it an area of specific concern. Discussion around artist parenthood. Discussions around artist parenthood are complicated if only because the people involved are as diverse and opinionated as any other group of artists. Things can quickly become factional. Many involved feel very strongly about using the term mother. In some cases, because the figure of mother carries huge cultural importance; in others, because using the more neutral term parents conceals the gender care gap and erases centuries of unpaid women's labour and, exclu- and erases centuries of unpaid women's labour and exclusion. Many others feel equally strongly about using the term parent, arguing that to continue framing this as a woman's issue perpetuates gender imbalance. Instead, we should be reinforcing the idea that these questions are of equal importance to all. So the other parents of my book's title include not only artist fathers and those who don't identify by the term mother. It also extends to others within the arts. The same structures that artist mothers struggle against will likewise have an impact on writers, curators, gallerists, and many other parents within the art world. The group held within the parentheses is far larger than the group that stands outside them. Thank you. That was the introduction. Really (laughs) ineptly read by me. I think I'd remember what I'd written. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not. Revive, revive some of the artworks and the people that have been excluded. So.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> really love the the pictures and the context and the art historical context in the introduction. Makes a very rich um, the whole topic. Oh, sorry. Um, shall we open to questions? Do
1: you Already. have some questions for me or?
0: I think one thing that might be obvious, but maybe it's interesting to ask you and talk about, because when when I was thinking about this show together with um, Adri, um, I came from this women angle and mothers, but then suddenly, the, the fathers came in and the parents. And I was kind of holding on to that because I thought, no, 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 it's about us, you know, women. And, but then it felt quite urgent to to, to open it up. And I was wondering how, how did you feel about that?
1: Well, there, I mean, there are definitely, for example, non-binary artists represented in the book. Um, and I do use the term parent quite a bit, but there are specific issues that really do affect mothers and non-binary artists particularly. For example, things like lactation rooms mm. and you know things around breastfeeding, which become particularly tricky, for example, on MA courses in art schools. Um, so, I mean, I think that, of course, it's really important to acknowledge the fact that there are wonderful artist fathers who are primary carers, the majority of single parents is still, I mean, it's still 90% women. Um, so the question of who's holding the baby is still pressingly something that affects women, and I think, you know, there is a, we're, I think we're all still negotiating this territory, but there is a way mm. to have inclusive language while also acknowledging the fact that, you know, there is there has been h- historic inclusion of women. That this is an area that does affect, you know, a very very large number of women in the art world. Um, I guess we're all still negotiating our way around that. Um, obviously, I didn't have to select any artworks for the book, so yeah. that I, I was in a slightly different position. And I was really looking specifically at people that had initiatives that were really helping um, change the situation. There is also really a phenomenon, and I shouldn't feel kind of weird and antsy about it, but there have been, for example, some exhibitions done recently by male curators where they've like co-curated with their kids, or they've curated exhibitions for kids, and they've had a huge amount of press around it. Mm. And there's part of me that kind of goes, if that was done by a woman curator, I wonder whether it would have got into The Guardian. Mm. Um, and it's almost like because it's done by a, a bloke, already they've got the platform. Yeah. So they've got the platform that they're then using for that, but also it becomes something that's, like kind, of, that's kind of exceptional as opposed to it just being like more women's work. I probably should get over myself on that because it's a bit pathetic, but I do feel, I d- mm. s- still do feel a bit weird about it.
0: Mm.
1: It's, it's sometimes I have that kind of like to s- step aside and let us have the platform for a change.
0: Yeah. But I understand the how not to exclude, it's not excluding yeah.
1: anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there's a big... At the end of it though, I have a kind of big section. Where, I mean, I, one of the artists that I interviewed um, in the book, Medison Varin, is she's non-binary, sorry, they are non-binary, I've already messed up. They are non-binary and they talk quite a lot about how we need to learn from like queer black parents mm-hmm. and how that's the kind of way forward. And I think it's really important to, to kind of hold that out as a, something totemic as well.
0: Over to you. Any questions?
2: Um, thank you so much for the presentation. It was great, and I just following up on what you just talked about. Could you expand on this um, idea of family and maternity?
1: I mean, I think, I think, as in what Melisandre was saying, mm-hmm. I mean, I think she's just looking at the ideas, like alternative family structures, the idea of, I mean, obviously within um, queer communities, there's this idea of chosen family, yeah. so that a family doesn't have, has, doesn't have to fit the kind of, the normative, you know, kind of nuclear family idea of a man and a woman and two kids. And we can look at different ways that we can have shared care, that we can look at different ways that we might think about raising children and different values that we bring to them. Um, that's my understanding of what she's talking about with that. And that also you're not putting people into specific kind of gender categories and, and gender roles within a family as well. And that at the idea of a family can be something expanded as well. It's not just like the nuclear family living in one household. Thank you. Kate, hello. Yeah, I mean I think in a way the two things I ended up feeling quite impassioned about aren't necessarily things that are specific to the art world but I think they were things that would make an enormous difference to the art world um, and one it, one I basically is just because Polly Braden's very impassioned about it which is that if you're on universal credit you can only get um, ch- uh, kind of a, up to two children counted under universal credit so if you're a single parent relying on universal credit that has a huge impact on you but the other one is to do with um, childcare not being uh, seen as a work expense which is a directly mi- misogynistic bit of legislation so long as there's a gender pay gap there's going to be a gender care gap and it's going to be uh, a piece of legislation that uh, disproportionately affects women and it's disproportionately women who have um, casual employment that are onto zero hours contracts. Um, and that are freelance, and so they don't come under those government schemes where you get supported corporate childcare. You don't get corporate childcare relief. Um, so you're kind of caught in a double bind where you're not in a kind of structured childcare situation. You're not getting relief for childcare, but you also can't ask for uh, childcare costs to be covered um, either you know, either counted against tax as a working expense or, for example, within an arts council project budget. Um, so I'd really love to get a copy of this book to Stella Creasy and maybe think about, you know, talk with, I mean, if there are any artists who would like to offer their creative heft to working with somebody like Stella Creasy towards making, towards publicising this as an issue and getting it to Parliament, I think that would be extraordinary. This isn't the only country where it's a massive problem, but I think, you know, it's something that we can start working towards in other countries as well. That I don't know, I can put a call out about it, but I know that when I was talking to Camille Hall and she's currently working in Germany, she still saw it as a massive issue. So I'm assuming that it's still the case, it's the case in Germany. I wonder whether there are, you know, obviously what I, we idealise them, but whether there are Scandinavian countries where it's different. Mm. You know, these would also be the countries where there are better paternity arrangements or more normalised paternity arrangements. Yeah, so that's not a specific art world thing, but I think that would help all women who are working in zero-hours contracts as freelancers, you know.
2: Hello. Hi, I'm Jo, by the way. Hi, Jo. And one thing that she suggested was that even though Arts Council won't say you know, offer funding, is that when you're sending back the report you can acknowledge this is the amount of my funding that would have been on childcare or this is the amount of actual hours that I've worked and then this is and to just call it out and I think those are the kind of small ways of Yeah.
1: And there are and definitely what, yeah so your work I think is very much in this sphere but then there are also I know that um, Fascio Sustek and Anne Hardy and um, I can't remember there's another artist um, they've, they're starting an initiative called FRANK which is to do with um, uh, kind of legislating for fair artists fair pay for artists and they have a kind of labour cost calculator and part of that includes childcare as part of an artist fee as well so but, I mean Jo's working in this sector as well so she's probably a better person than to ask than me about this Right. Joe, do you want to tell everybody about your initiative and no. what and how to follow you on Instagram and stuff? Repronomics. If anybody anybody on Instagram live didn't get it, it's called Repronomics and you should follow Joe on Instagram. Um, But also Joe and I have also been talking about maybe starting up just like a really um, uh, informal group called uh, Artworking Parents. So it's for professionals in the art world rather than artists, because I keep getting contacted by people working for galleries or academics about the fact that they're... Being very badly treated, they're not getting support. They don't know how to um, how to negotiate maternity leave. They don't know how to negotiate maternity pay. So I think by bringing people together, just at the very least to share their experiences, that's a starting position. Um, and then perhaps if there's a large enough group, we can think about having a symposium to to kind of lay out some ground rules for how you know how to talk about kind of cutting down on travel in the art world, which we should also all be doing because of you know, for environmental reasons. So, Um, and how to make things more adapted to parents in the art world. Which also then, you know, treating people better in the art world in general and putting less pressure in people in the art world in general might then also encourage some, you know, some artist fathers to share childcare more because it won't be seen as such an impediment on their careers as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it all has hopefully start. it could potentially start a virtuous cycle. Yeah, I don't know if you, did you, I don't know if you read the essay that I wrote for Kate, Phil Messy and Beautiful, so it kind of does touch on that a bit, so there were quite a lot of, I mean the book somewhat kind of, it takes almost a career trajectory, so the first chapter basically looks at the kind of the the general art world culture at the moment, but in that it looks at um, the issues that lots of artists faced when they became pregnant the fact that they immediately lost contracts, um, they weren't taken seriously, they were dropped by dealers, um, and you know, the fact that curators essentially stopped speaking to women when they knew they were about to have children. Um, and it then kind of moves through various different stages in artists' careers. I mean, I think you know each stage of motherhood has its own issues. But then I, you know, I mentioned kind of you know being an old parent looking after children with mental health issues. I have so many friends, particularly after the pandemic, who have you know have, have older children. And they're now still blindsided by having to really be so actively present in their children's lives, and also so much of their mental space is taken up with concern about their children's lives. And I think motherhood is just, can be a constant series of surprises of what's demanded of you what's in store it's not just to do with new motherhood Um, but I think there are different structures that are required at many different stages so I think in the very early structures having those kinds of mothers who make type mother and baby groups is incredibly important to have a space where you can express all the different aspects of your personality so you can be both a mother and an artist in the same space Um, and obviously later on in an artist career you know, once children are at school Having affordable studio space, having uh, easily accessible studio space is really important, and also having things like childcare becoming part of a kind of a, 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 an artist's budget. And then later on in an artist's career, you know, actually kind of facing up against the whole challenge of ageism in the art world, and particularly ageism if you're a woman artist, and if you've had to take, let's say, fifteen years out of your career, how do you go about re-emerging? Um, So yeah there are different notes, so I mean all of these different things touched on in the book. I have to say the the, the question of coming back into the art world in your 40s or early 50s is one thing I still do not have, I do not have a kind of magic answer to and it's something we're all going to have to work really hard at doing and being incredibly aware of, you know, other older women that we're working with and making sure that we're providing adequate support and not making assumptions about Oh, I've not heard of your work, I've not seen your work for mm-hmm. a while, maybe you're you're not very good, mm-hmm. or maybe they've just not been able to be out there, maybe they've not had support, maybe they've focused me somewhere else, so just being kind of generous is really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, you, spoke, you spoke about the whole structural
0: aspect, I wonder if you see a correlation between uh, the fact that obviously being a mother is not a good thing, if you want to work in the arts, and uh, the the presence
1: of art that women and mother made about motherhood itself. Yeah, so the, so the second chapter of the book looks at art schools and it really looks at there being this kind of double bind really with art schools. Um, on the one hand, uh, then they invite people to, they, they kind of promote postgraduate courses and so that means that lots of students are going to be coming back to art schools in their late 20s or early 30s. But then they're very bad at um, accommodating mothers within the student body. And there were some uh, real horror stories there. Um, it was quite shocking. There are also art schools that treat people very well. Uh, but then also when they were at the art school, the, those students who were interested in making work about motherhood were told that they, they were dissuaded from doing things that were about mummy issues or kind of, you know, like icky stuff. And there was a lot of prejudice against motherhood as a subject. Um, It was seen as not a legitimate subject for study Um, and that partly is because there's not been a proper art historical, any art historical work done on motherhood as a subject Um, and it's partly because this kind of old prejudice keeps reinforcing itself because we basically learn what important exciting art is while we're at art school and if we're constantly being told that work that's around the subject of motherhood is not exciting important work, we carry that prejudice internally Lots of people I interviewed for the book, you know, even what kind of fifteen years after they'd been at art school when they were mothers, felt really weird about making work about motherhood and really uncomfortable about it. And they still had the tutor telling them that they were making like, you know, insignificant work, stuff that was just about mummy mummy stuff. Um, so we internalise a lot of that prejudice I think from our education as well. That in turn then the, the lack of a proper history having been written of artist motherhood and the lack of, the absence of motherhood within the curriculum also then has an impact on what curators see as important subjects to include in exhibitions and to include in public collections. So it becomes a kind of snowballing effect, but I think art schools are a really important place to start tackling um, the perception and the accommodation of mothers as well. we run out of hands.
0: <laughs>
1: um, I think-
2: that Is
1: that Joe? Sorry, yeah. hi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that that line is actually from Martina Mullaney who held the Missing Mother conference last year with Bolton University. So I guess about twelve years ago, she started up an enterprise called Enemies of Good Art, which is based on the Cyril Connolly line that yeah. there's no more sombre enemy of good art than the pram in the hall. Were you, were you involved in that? Yeah. Um, so they worked with so you know, they, so they they kind of did they staged interventions and they had a podcast and there were various things that they did. But kind of more recently, Martina basically started working towards a PhD and the subject of the PhD really is how to take all of that discussion about, and the energy about, around art and motherhood and try and get it beyond the echo chamber. Because since Enemies of Good Art started there's been, you know, there's been a flowering of enterprises around the world and it's really great. I mean, I think Martina very much sees it as having been a product of Enemies of Good Art. I think it's just one of those things where all kinds of factors actually changed around the same time I think we're in a more public identity driven era at the moment so you're much more party to details of people's personal lives so it's quite difficult to make that separation between your public and your person your your working life and your your um, personal life and so motherhood in a way becomes a lot more public um, and I think also people are becoming much more comfortable about talking about identities whether that's motherhood or sexuality or their you know, gender identity or their, or their you know, their, their kind of background as a child of immigrants or whatever. Um, and so I think this is becoming, you know, it's, it's kind of back on the menu of it. Um, but I think Martina's right, there is really this kind of self-reinforcing echo chamber to an extent, because it's almost become not an industry, but there's definitely a kind of global network that has, you know, I mean, just look at this audience right now, we've got... You know, it's people that I've worked with, people that have been involved in the study, um, people, somebody that's been in Enemies of Good Art, Joe, who's doing Repronomics. So, I'm sitting here, and, and I'm talking to Penelope, who's programmed, a, you know, she's curated an exhibition of work about art and motherhood. We are, the, echo, the echo, we're sitting in the echo chamber right now. I don't know if there's, you know, there's... there's I, I can't see any men in the audience, but... Um, so it's kind of, it's how do we take that, kind of, beyond... I
2: mean, I I never voice. Yeah. I mean, like... do you get that?
1: I mean, there have been a couple of people, so in the Japanese... I mean, I can, li- I can literally count them on the fingers of one hand, but uh, when they did the Japanese translation of the Manifesto, Koki Tanaka was one of the artists that did it. James Bridle did a free, built me a free website for the Manifesto. Mm. So there are people that feel very invested in it, which is great. I'm really hoping that, you know, this book, I mean, I've, I was invited to do a big feature for Freeze to go to, for this book. Um, they wanted me to write about Caroline Walker. You can really see the commercial galleries are suddenly starting to realise that actually there's an appetite mm-hmm. for art about motherhood. So Caroline Walker's show at Stream Friedman Gallery was sensational Talamadani's Shit Mum series. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ingrid and I saw that, I think, together, and it's a really challenging body of work, but I think it was an extraordinary exhibition. Um, Camille has always been making work about breast pumping and, you know, autophagia and stuff. And she also wrote a column in a Swiss newspaper about being an artist's mother. So there are people that are now of a kind of career stage who are kind of, most like kind of pushing the agenda a bit, which is really great. But I think to an extent, I'm really hoping that it all kind of starts to you know, reinforce that it helps people, that having more publicity around it, more events like this makes people feel emboldened to kind of make that next step to be, to talk more publicly about their identity as an artist parent. Um, so, you know, hopefully we'll get it there, but yeah. A bit of pushing. I mean, that's, it's I've got obviously that's two chapters in the book. So there's one on residencies and there's one on commercial galleries. You also have to buy the book and read it. But um, <laughs> it's it's really interesting that after we published that manifesto, I was then approached by a couple of residencies who were interested in becoming parent friendly. So one of them was the lovely Grisdale Art Centre in um, in the Lake District in the UK, um, and I just. You know, I just did, kind of like did a couple of hours talking to them free and going through the Google Doc that all of the artists we worked on and kind of made recommendations for how to make it more um, artist-parent friendly. And again, it goes back to the thing that not all artists want the same thing. Artists are all different. You're all individuals. So for some artists, they really want to have their kids with them. Other artists want time away from their kids, but they can only do like one week at a time, so they want to split the residency up. But as of last week, I was... Um, I was approached by the Swiss Arts Council Pro Helvetia, and they've asked me to go and be a consultant for them for their residencies to make them parent friendly. Mm -hmm. The manifesto was also picked up by an advisor to the French cultural minister. So I mean, people are listening. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's great, you know. And there are and Penelope now has a parent friendly artist residency. I mean, it's. I think it's just. Quite often I find with these things it's simply because, as I said in the introduction, it hadn't occurred to people that an artist might also be a mother, mm-hmm. so they just kept going business as usual and suddenly when you say, yeah actually some of these really brilliant artists, these artists who are like working at the avant-garde, also have kids and what are you going to do about it? And I will suddenly go, yeah we want to work with these artists, so actually yeah we can do some really easy things. It's just because it hadn't occurred to people that they might want to make the changes sometimes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. very young people, like how can you go away for three months? Mm. Like yeah. and Foundation, they're all three months. Mm-hmm. So even if you have a kid, and if they're willing to have it with you, you cannot take it because the school will like, fine you, uh, you have to pay all these fines or, or, or you lose your school. Yeah, I mean again, again yeah. So And after lots of paperwork, she finally have this authorization by the state, so, so she can travel with her son and take him out of school. So what I'm saying is the whole system is there for you to stay in one city, in one place, and doing that role. So to break away from that is so complicated.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, it's there is not an easy solution. There were a number of alternative solutions. A big one goes back to ageism. So to completely remove the age cap, the age cap. On residencies and I mean I